Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but it's composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. Today, I'm speaking with Griff Green, who has a fascinating story of journey through crypto. And I think the story really starts in many, many places, but it starts with Griff living off of the grid and choosing to use gold to store his value in order to live a bankless life. Before Bitcoin was even a thing or Bitcoin had entered his life, Griff was off the grid being kind of a hippie communal type guy kind of traveling the world that really got turned off by some aspects about society. So he just yeeted himself out of society, traveled the world, got rid of all his belongings, put everything in a backpack, and started using gold to store his value. And then, of course, found his way into the world of Bitcoin and then Ethereum later on. Griff has the most fascinating story about the DAO. As somebody who had front row seats of the DAO, the 2016 DAO, we spend at least the second half, the whole entire second half of the episode is going through the story of the DAO. And that's actually the first time I've heard that story in such granular detail. So that really was just the absolute highlight of this interview, in my opinion. I had a fantastic time like speaking with Griffin, getting to know him a little bit more. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Griff Green. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The era of proof of stake is upon us, and Lido is working to bring proof of stake to everyone. Lido is a decentralized staking protocol that allows users to stake on Ethereum, Terra, and Solana, and receive an interest-bearing token in return. Stake any amount of your ETH to the Lido validating network and receive STETH in return. This STETH can be traded, used as collateral for lending or borrowing, or leveraged on your favorite DeFi protocol, and all this without locking up your ETH in a centralized staking service or exchange. That's what Lido is here to do. Lido makes staking accessible to everyone at the click of a button. By delegating your stake to Lido's network of nodes, you can access the yield offered by proof-of-stake systems and claim your share of network transaction rewards. Do you have 32 ETH and want to stake it to Ethereum, but running a node sounds intimidating? Or maybe you have less than 32 ETH and you need to pool your ETH with others so you can access staking yields. Lido offers a solution to both. Simply go to lido.fi, choose which assets you want to stake and deposit them to the Lido validating network. 
Lido is making sure proof of stake stays as decentralized as possible and is committed to decentralizing its own validating networks to eventually become a completely permissionless protocol. So if you want to stake your ETH, Terra or Sol and get liquidity on your stake, go to Lido.fi to get started. Hey Griff, hey, hey. how's it going? Ah, fantastically, man. How are you? Also fantastic, always fantastic. It's always a fun time to be in crypto. So the last time we talked was in uh, Colorado after MCON, and I have a little uh, a funny story to, to tell you about it because uh, I, was, I was talking to you, asking you a little bit about your background and your life, and then I went on a plane ride to New York and I started listening to Matt Lysing's book about Ethereum, and then he talks about like the parts of the DAO hack and talks about like this guy Griff Green that was part of the damage control for the DAO hack. I'm like, wait, Griff Green? I was just talking to that guy in Colorado. Yeah. Now he's like in the subject matter of this book. Yeah, Matt. Matt did a Matt had a lot of fun with that book for sure. Is it, it was uh, it wasn't as accurate as some of the other uh, books that are coming out on Ethereum. It was definitely like, oh hey, let's make let's have this be like more adventurous and more fun. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it was fun talking with him over the years too. He, he's been writing that for a while. Yeah, it was just fun from my perspective about like, oh, I'm going to this convention, meta cartel convention. And then I'm also just meeting the people that these kind of sci-fi stories about Ethereum are being written about. And it's crazy like how much like literature has been made so quickly about this industry. And then it's also like still happening, right? The stories are oh, still yeah. unfolding at the same time. Oh yeah, so much, man. And yeah, it's a... Uh... You know, Ethereum's been around for a long time, surprisingly. There's been mm -hmm. a lot of chaos, a lot of adventures. And I have to say, I've been in a lot of them. A lot of these, like, crazy, crazy times. So, And then that's definitely some of the stories I want to get told on, on the show today. But but I, I think uh, in order to tell those stories, we have to just go all the way back and hear a little bit about Griff Green. So, Griff, who were you as a kid? What were you interested when you were growing up? What captured your attention? And how did Griff Green come to be Griff Green? Uh, let's see. As a kid, I mean, I was just a normal kid. My mom was like a waitress. My dad was a correctional officer. Uh, actually, my dad was my stepdad. And I met my real dad when I was like 12. And I, I end up having about six parents. Right. And so that, that was really fun having this like family of families, so many grandparents, mm -hmm. so many socks at Christmas, you know. Uh, and <laughs> I, I was uh, I I. I mean, I, we can zoom through it. You know, I used to coach my little brothers and sisters basketball teams and I uh, was really into basketball and ended up getting a, a chemical engineering degree at the University of Washington. Uh, in high school, I was on the... Griff is, uh, Griff is really tall, by the way, for listeners that don't know that. He's a pretty tall guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that tall guy for sure. He's got me by, by sure. a mile, but yeah, I'm, I'm okay. It's fun on the screen, right? To come out of the screen and meet everybody in person <laughs> mm -hmm. and be like, who's tall, who's short? Is right. It's, a, it's the fun game. Like, who's in tall Dow, who's in short Dow? <laughs> oh, man, that might be a fun game, right? I've, I've been trying to poke the crypto Twitter sphere to start creating tall Dow and short Dow, but I don't know actually where t short Dow starts. <laughs> oh, man. Like, where would you think short Dow should start? I don't know, man. It's shorter than me. No. <laughs> 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 uh, okay, so we'll, we'll keep on zooming through yeah. your background, but you said you, you were, had like six parents, six family, like uh, people taking care of you. Because a lot of the times I've heard you talk, you have very communal vibes about you. Definitely. Um, yeah. Do you think, are those two things connected? Maybe. You think? Maybe. I'm definitely a sharing is caring kind of guy. 
but uh, I don't know. Probably. I, I, I definitely like the family vibe. And, you know, it's just but it's the same thing. It's like divorced parents and stuff. So it wasn't all right. communal. It was it was just sure. like it wasn't one set of one family. of parents <laughs> Yeah, six. exactly. Yeah. The tribal polyamorous <laughs> like life. No, it right. was just yeah. more more muggly than that. You know, pretty normal mm-hmm. lifestyle. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't know, I don't feel like there's too much interesting things. I grew up in Spokane, which is, uh, like part uh, near in Washington state near Idaho, Mm -hmm. you know, nothing wild there. Uh, went to lived in Seattle for like eight years and actually where in Seattle did you live? Uh, in North Seattle, uh, all over North Seattle. I went to UW Mm -hmm. for four years. So I was in the U district and Lake city and, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, just all over Maple Leaf, Green Lake, you know, just, yeah, yeah. Dancing around. That's that, that's where my family is. Is is Maple Leaf. Yeah. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. It, do you mm-hmm. know Pattaya uh, Paya, Thai cuisine? It's like a, an apartment building on 90th and Lake City Way. Mm, I definitely have driven right past it a bajillion times, but no. There's I don't a strip. It. There's a strip club there called Ricks across oh, yeah, yeah, the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. still there. That's yeah. still there. Oh, yeah. good. In the uh, shanty I, tavern. I pass by. I I pass by Ricks and I drive up to my dad's house. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Well, the, there's uh, that apartment building right across the street. I lived there for like two years so that's fun mm, mm, okay yep 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 yeah no we're, we're we're from the same part of the woods man nice nice yeah, yeah. i love seattle um actually I, I um i cut i'm a i'm really more of a community organizer in the theorem space and i cut my mm-hmm. teeth with uh save our sonics there was this like you remember of course right. the seattle supersonics yep. so i yep. was a huge sonics fan like out of this world Sonics fan. Uh, all I had a whole room like uh, when I was a chemical engineer and I like moved up to a decent like I shared a house with another chemi and we got like a really nice party house for a little bit and uh, I had a whole room dedicated to the Sonics. It was just wall to wall Sonics wow. gear, right? And I had a I would carry a Gary Payton rookie card in my pocket everywhere I go and, wow. and like cut out the the only days I didn't wear Sonics gear was the days after they lose a game because I was in mourning. You know, it was like mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. I had all these traditions built around it. My whole life purpose was basically to get courtside seats uh, of the Sonics and. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they were bought by a basket yep. by like this guy in Oklahoma City who said he wanted to keep them there. But also before he bought the team, he's like, I'm bringing a team to Oklahoma, you know. So right. everyone knew that it was a scam. He, okay. he sold off all of the good players and then got a bunch of rookies and stuff and good draft picks like Kevin Durant and uh, Russell Westbrook. And then uh, like because the team sucked. He was like, oh, well, hey, either we get a new arena or we move because this is how it works. And uh, and so for two years, I was like general of the fans working to keep the team in town. So this was like my political movement, you know, and uh, it, I was already kind of um, an Austrian economist. Like I, I, I kind of came from that side of, of the scene, uh, hated the banks, hated all the like all of the um all the taxes and these sorts of things that would that were mm, I don't know challenging to like individ- individual freedom, and uh, I kind of like put some of those values on hold so I could try to like get taxes for uh, an <laughs> arena, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, we actually were about to win. There was this court case that we that we levied where they we had paid for uh, some improvements to Key Arena which they were playing basketball in at the time. And 
uh, they had a 15 year contract that had a clause in it that's like special purpose. Like they have to stay in Seattle and play games in that arena uh, according to this contract for 15 years and only been 13 years. So it was a pretty clear cut case. And the, and we held a huge rally like that I that I organized. It was like three thousand person rally in front of Key wow. Arena, and you know I had to get the permits and all that crap. Uh, and Gary Payton and Sean Kemp were there, you know, and it was like it was basically this huge. It was a huge thing. And then the day the judge was going to give their ruling, that was going to like keep the team there for two more years, and it would have basically forced the guy into selling the team because. We had rallied support against him all over the place. Uh, the mayor held a press conference right before the ruling and said, actually, I'm just going to sign away the team and uh, they're going to give us like $60 million and that's it. Mm-hmm. And it was like yep. I had worked, you know, two years. Every ounce of time that I had was dedicated to this. Uh, I was championing this cause. And then with one stroke of a pen, some politician just said, ah, fuck it, you know. Uh, sorry, can I swear on this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is that your <laughs> Blizzard wort nerfing the Warlock spell that created it? Is that your moment moment for you? Absolutely. I yeah. I was I basically lost it. Uh, you know, and it's of course you know the worst things that happen to you are always the best things that happen to you. Mm-hmm. You know, if if we would have succeeded and kept the Sonics in town. I probably would just be an overweight chemical engineer, like with courtside seats, just, <laughs> you know, sitting in a cubicle, hack, building power plants for the man. Right. right? Uh, but instead, I was like, fuck all this. I asked to be laid off in, two, 20, in 2008 when okay. all the layoffs were coming. Right? When, when was the whole uh, Sonic story? When, when did that happen again? Uh, Sonic. So the Sonic. I should know this. A, the, lot of my friends were, a lot of my friends were at that rally, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were, um, we were in middle school at the time. Yeah, I guess the Sonics would have happened in 2009. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that would have been like summer of 2009, I think. And then uh, the layoffs happened at the end of 2009. So it was like a few months later. Mm-hmm. And I'd already kind of like, it was just like in my mind, like, I don't want to do this anymore. There was also some stuff with the chemical engineering. I'm a pretty ethical, um, I'm a hippie straight up, mm-hmm. right? And I had to design uh, an aeration basin for the pollution that was coming out of this uh, aluminum smelter. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, so I was working for a power plant company that was doing mostly natural gas power plants and also some renewable energy power plants. And I felt fine with that Mm because natural gas is basically a waste product. You Mm -hmm. know, they often just burn it uh, after drilling for oil. So it feels like you're taking garbage and turning it into electricity people can use. I felt okay with that and super clean. Uh, But this specific power plant that I was designing and and working on was fueling an aluminum smelter. And it was my job to take the pollution from the aluminum smelter and, you know, make it prepared well enough for the ocean. The problem is that this... Prep the pollution for the rest of the world. The secret to chemical engineering, a dirty little secret, the, the solution to pollution is dilution. So the real question was, how much seawater do I pump into our pollution before you just dump it out into the ocean? And yeah, can we turn it into not waste by diluting it with a lot of things that isn't waste? Yeah, I mean, it's still poison, but, you know, hey, at least it's diluted. So it's like, oh, um, and so I actually was, you know, there's a lot of um, buffers. There's a lot of interesting things with ocean water. It's not like clear cut. If you bring in this ocean water, how will the pollution react with the ocean water? 
And and so I kind of cheated a little bit and I made the, the specification a little conservative on what the pH would be. Uh, the regulations in Abu Dhabi were horrible. And it was like the ocean was a pH of 8.4 and the, the pollution coming out, the regulations said it had to be a pH of six. And that's, that's a logarithmic scale. So that's like the, the pollution can be 300 times more acidic than the ocean water itself. That's not cool. You know, like a little, mm -hmm. I, and so I cheated and I was trying, I had like one calc over here and then the calc that was the official calc that would like say, hey, look, an engineer said this would give out these results. Right. And I kind of just like tweaked it so that the pH would be about seven, which is rainwater and mm -hmm. totally great. But then the seawater pumps were so big that it didn't really, wasn't very cost effective. And my boss basically told me to redo the calc and fix it because it's not right. Like that's just not mm -hmm. real. And I was like, ah, right. shit. And so what I should have said at the time, if, you know, I was, I was a lot younger than I am now. I should have said, I actually don't feel good about this. Can you just make someone else right. do it? But instead I fixed it and, you know, did the math right. And then now there's a pipe in Abu Dhabi that's like little fish are swimming in front of it and going, ah, it burns. And then, you know, mm -hmm. and so uh, that plus the sonics, I was just like, I'm done with chemi. I'm done with all of this chemical engineering stuff. I just want to like sell everything I own and become a hippie. Right. So, yeah, society just turned you just got turned off by society. Yeah. From the left and the right. Totally. Totally. It's just like this is I wanted to exit the banks, exit the American system and the American way of materialism and and the classic things. And just so I just sold everything I own. I bought a pop top van and uh, drove around the States for a little bit, had a great time. I uh, went to Burning Man for the first time. This is 2011. And uh, because I was doing a lot of stuff, I had started a little moving company and I uh, was doing all sorts of random, you know, under the table, basically mm -hmm. started Craigslist businesses all over the place. Right. And just gig work, you were, you were just like doing a bunch of different things to scrape some dollars together just so you could keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And I was living off savings. You know, I was a chemical right. engineer. I, I never really right. bought a lot of things. I, I was always right. pretty cheap. And uh, and also I was buying, I was storing all of my value in gold and silver. And eventually I avoided even having a bank account. And so I just had gold, silver bars and I would go and go to a, there's Northwest Territorial Mint, which doesn't exist anymore, but down in Tacoma. So I would just make a mm -hmm. run down to Tacoma buy a bunch of gold and silver. And then like, you know, that's where I would put my money. And that was your bank account. Yeah. And I was doing that beef when I was a chemical engineer too. So. Right. Before crypto was even a thing. Yeah. So you had gone bankless before Bitcoin had even mined its first block. Yeah, definitely. And then when I heard about Bitcoin, well, no, I still had a bank account. I probably went bankless in 2011 where I had no okay, bank but, account right. and maybe even 2010, somewhere in that time, I didn't have a bank account and I didn't have a bank account for years, actually. What, what motivated? Cause that's a big pain in the butt. Like I want to break up with my bank just as much as like Ryan does. And as much as I say that I do on, on the podcast, but like also I still need to like, you know, pay rent and stuff like that. So like not having a bank account would be like really cumbersome. I would imagine. It was. Where did the motivation come to just like access your bank account? I, you know, at the time it was like Occupy Wall Street was going on. There was a lot of things and, and really this idea of, uh, Banks being the root of all evil, you know, like, could we have war without banks fund payrolling it? You know, the, the whole banking system 
being this, uh, being something I didn't want to support. I didn't want my energy to be part of that world. You know, I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to escape. And I was living in a van, right? I was uh, totally off the grid. I didn't, I wouldn't do any, I was doing Craigslist deals back and forth, you know, and just playing the, the, playing the free market without governments and banks. That was like where I wanted to be. So I made that reality, right? So you weren't a gold bug. You didn't really believe in gold, like going up in price. You were literally just using it as a tool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did, I was a gold bug of sorts, but I really was just like the fiat, like you, the federal reserve note is garbage. So what can I keep my value in, you know, gold or, and that's the thing, buying and selling stuff on Craigslist that I thought was a good deal that I could like, you know, hold on to smaller things and and large things and then put it back on and try to make some money here and there, uh, improve the Craigslist ads basically, you know? So <laughs> I, I would store my capital in things that I thought were good investments that were not part of like not Amazon stock, but you know, mm-hmm. whatever I could. Uh, yeah. And so it just, and then stuff that I could add. The original to. NFT flipping. Yeah. A little bit, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Where you're trading physical goods on Craigslist and the way that people are flipping NFTs on OpenSea right now. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. NFTs on OpenSea is so much better. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go talk with someone and then give them cash. Right. And then they're uh-huh. probably like, they're, half the time they're a scammer and just a time waster. I think it's crazy how much of your pre crypto life actually resembles what crypto life is nowadays. <laughs> I think that's really and, funny. And that's how I got into it, right? Like, I saw a Trace Mayer video when Bitcoin was $5. And then I was like, oh, this is so cool, you know? Uh, I can't believe they made it money outside of the banking system. Oh, I want to see this nerd money, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it was like to get it, you had to wire money to somewhere in Japan, Mount Gox, right? Empty Gox. And I just, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's right. not, how's that even? That it's not that sense. cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I, wiring, I don't want to talk to the banks. They don't exist mm-hmm. in my world, right? Right. Uh, so, but then eventually one of my buddies figured out how to get Bitcoin from Coinbase. At, uh, this is in 2013. And at that time I had left the States completely. I sold my van and I started traveling, went to South America, uh, in Ecuador, and I love Latin America. And I uh, f- fell in love with that area of the world. And then came back to the States, went to Burning Man again, that's 2012. Then I went to Asia. I uh, went to India for a few months, went to the Kumbh Mela, the largest gathering of humans every time it happens every 12 years. A uh, hundred million people. Oh, the bathrooms were gross, man. The bathrooms oh, I'm were. Sure. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> like the, the t- a tin roof, like kind of cubicle thing with just shit smeared out of the walls. Oh, no. Uh, it oh, was, no. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, it was atrocious, but interesting for sure. Kind of like a spiritual Burning Man where uh, there's a. Uh, yeah. There, anyway, I can keep going. And then there's a, then I went to Thailand. And while I was in Thailand, my buddy, I was just talking to my buddy. He's like, yeah, he was buying drugs on Silk Road, right? And uh, he told me he could, he was using Bitcoin. And, oh my God, mm-hmm. dude, I want some, right? I had some gold and silver stored with another friend in the, in the States and he would sell it and then wire me money. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how I was traveling. And okay, so you I, had a bank account. No, I didn't have a bank account. He would wire me money. I'd pick it up at a at a like a, ah. 
um, you know, like Western Union or whatever. Yeah, 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 okay, sure, sure, sure. And uh, and then and he would sell the gold and silver for me. Usually he'd just buy it from me and then sell it a little later whenever he felt like it. And then so he actually gave my friend three grand worth of gold and silver. It's about fifty fifty. And then my buddy sent me three grand of Bitcoin. And I instantly turned that Bitcoin into half Bitcoin, half Litecoin, Namecoin, Purecoin, Primecoin, a Terracoin, yeah. Feathercoin, you know, everything uh-huh. that was on, uh, on BTCE, right. uh, which was the exchange I was holding my Bitcoin on. And this is like, oh, this was right after this, this, uh, the Cyprus riots, you know, and there was this uh, in April 2013, Bitcoin, I was watching Bitcoin and it had gone up from you know fifty dollars to about two hundred and fifty dollars, and then crashed down to fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. And right at the crash uh, is when I made the trade. And so mm-hmm. I was able to buy Bitcoin at about like somewhere. It was I bought it a few times at around fifty uh, fifty eight dollars was the lowest price I got, uh, mm-hmm. and most of it was around ninety dollars. The average mm-hmm. price was about eighty, and so I had like three grand at eighty dollars. And then uh, while I was, eventually I went back to the States and I got a girlfriend in LA. And so I was, then I was mm-hmm. living in West Hollywood. I learned to become a Thai masseuse in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And so that was what my profession was going to be, I figured. And so I was giving Thai massages in Beverly Hills. I had a, like a nice, a clientele that liked me as a bear, you're right? I had like, I passed my card to this one guy and then he passed it to a bunch of friends. And it was like all these gay guys in Beverly Hills. Then that was like my big, my big money. So I was getting paid <laughs> like $200 um, uh, at massage to go in and like, you know, uh, <laughs> it was a little awkward sometimes. I'm not going to lie. I'm sure. I'm there's, sure. There's definitely, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure there's stories inside of stories inside of stories. Yeah. We can keep it. We can keep it PG. We don't need to go there. Yeah, that's that's fine. Um, so w- when you traded your gold for Bitcoin, what was the motivation on that? Was it that it's literally a digital form of gold? So it's like the UX for you in your life is better? Or was it more speculation? I was like, I think this thing could go up in price. A little bit of both, but mostly speculation. Uh, I mean, it yeah. had just crashed. From 250 right. to 50 and and I had seen it when it was five dollars so mm-hmm. I had a good feeling about it to say the least okay and okay. Uh, but the idea the, and the promise was there uh, but right. honestly it didn't work for what I wanted to do because eventually I had to even interact I had to get a bank account Bitcoin actually right. made me get a bank account and so <laughs> I know Brutal. isn't that sad <laughs> right so sad but this is why we talk about why we need DeFi, but that's a subject for a different day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is 2013, 2014. Right. DeFi was a, a gleam in Vitalik's eye, uh, to say the right. least. Sure. So, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, Ethereum didn't even exist. In fact, it was an interesting time. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was so Bitcoin, I was in West Hollywood and Bitcoin went from, you know, $100 to $1,000. And it blew my mind because mm-hmm. I turned three grand into 24 grand. Mostly Litecoin money was like where the big profit was. Gains, yeah. yeah. Uh, I bought Litecoin at $2.50 and it went to $42, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's just mind boggling. And I, so I turned three grand into 24 grand and I'm like, I could live off this for a year, like well. What is this stuff? You know, I'm going to stop massaging, massaging and just research Bitcoin. And I'm a chemical engineer. I have a technical background. I'm not a dev. 
but I would, but I'm a community organizer and with some technical understanding. So I can like, I dove in and then it, the deeper I went, the more value aligned I found myself. And at the time, Bitcoin was a mix of all, there was no blockchain. No one talked about blockchain. They just talked about Bitcoin and all the Ethereum people were in Bitcoin, you know, and they were right, talking Because there wasn't about, Ethereum at that time, right? Yeah, there was no Ethereum. There was no, there, there was uh, MasterCoin was coming up. NXT right. was coming up. There were these other like 2.0 coins. Uh, right. What they're called. Uh, like Vitalik called these uh, Swiss Army knife coins. Yeah. Right? Like it's uh, where Bitcoin is like a knife. All these other coins came out like were Swiss Army knives where they did a bunch of things. Um, but no one had yet cracked Turing completeness yet. No. And a lot of people, I, you know, there were a lot of forks of other of Bitcoin, too. They were just the I mean, Dogecoin, honestly, was like my favorite community by far. Uh, there's lots of fun stuff going on and people had high vibes everywhere else. It was so much money, 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 money. Mm. But there were pockets of the Bitcoin community, which turned into the Ethereum community, honestly, that were talking about the revolutionary aspects of how you can use this currency to and, and currency creation in itself to actually like change the way we coordinate as a as society. And that's where I just was like, yes, 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 we can do, you know, here we can start doing things. So this moment in your life to me seems like the counter moment to you tapping out of society after the Sonics and the 08 crisis and also the whole you know, like uh, nuclear power plant thing. Or not, maybe not nuclear. Um, yeah. So like the one ejected you from, so you chose to eject yourself from society. And now with discovering the ethos behind Bitcoin, you're like, Oh, this like I'm. I want to go into this society. I'm like I'm ready to get back into the world of the world. Uh, Is that a fair description? Absolutely. I wouldn't say get back into the world, but get back, get into the crypto In, into world. Into something. Into right. the yeah, crypto exactly. world. Yeah. I'm like, how do I right. do it? And actually, right. uh, I never. I have very little faith in the educational system and certificate. I always thought certifications were bullshit. But uh, because I'm like, I want to get into crypto, how do I do it? I took, I made two choices. Uh, number one, I broke up with my girlfriend because she was jealous of Bitcoin. I was given too much attention. <laughs> I was obsessed with Bitcoin and she wanted my attention. And I was just like, I love you, but I can't. I, I'm obsessed. I'm right. a man possessed, uh -huh. right? And wow, I, I think all, there are per, any uh, crypto wives or crypto girlfriends listening to this might absolutely empathize with that. Yeah, yeah I, I feel bad, but it wasn't going to happen. So I, I broke up with her and went to Ecuador and was like, I'm going to be the. Is that really the reason? It was like you just couldn't stop focusing about Bitcoin and, and it just drove a wedge in the relationship? A hundred percent. I mean, before I was giving her a lot more attention, I would go and massage for two to four hours a day max, and we would hang mm -hmm. out. And there was lots of quality time. I mean, there was like, you know, love languages, right? Like quality time, mm -hmm. words of affirmation, acts sure. of service, you know, all these things. And uh, I didn't have the time to do quality time. And so that, that I don't want to say... It was only because of that. There, of course, it's always a, a very complex thing. But in the end, uh, she wanted to be in L.A. And I didn't see like a lot of value in being in L.A. while I'm focusing all the time on Bitcoin. And I saw a lot of opportunity to bring Bitcoin to Ecuador. Right. And it was like, I'm going to bring Bitcoin to Ecuador. I'm going to uh, and, and I'm going to get a master's degree in digital currencies. 
those are like mm-hmm. the two that was the path I, I chose to take for the next period of time and so I went to Ecuador I started knocking uh, I, I started just making meetups with the few other people that were into crypto there I chose Ecuador number one because I loved Ecuador it was my favorite place in my travels and uh, number two they use the US dollars and they have a five percent tax on any money that leaves the country so mm-hmm. I'll be honest and like well this is an opportunity right because we have payment rails that the government can't meter and it seems like easy money like let's just get a let's get a bitcoin community here people can, once people trust it people will use it because there's a five percent reason to use it right uh, mm-hmm. And so I was going to start the business model writes itself. Exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't know exactly how or what, but I knew I, I just needed to meet like minded people and build something. And so I met like minded people and uh, was, was while, while I was getting this master's degree and ended up like finding out that Ecuador had their own plans for a digital currency of like a phone currency, a dumb phone currency. Also, I found out that it was just really hard to talk to Ecuadorians about like this kind of tech. Uh, mm-hmm. I would go, I had some success, like early on, it was like, wow, no one has, they're just like a, a kind of afraid of technology. They didn't trust technology, right? Sure. Uh, and so I would actually go to, well, where are the tech people? Right? I'd go to colleges and actually just knock on doors of computer science classrooms and say, hey, I want to give everyone in here a little bit of Bitcoin and tell them about it. And uh, I did this seven times and four out of the seven times they let me in and I would just like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, interrupt their class, which maybe it says something about the educational opportunities in Ecuador. I don't know. Like, um, and then I would just like give a little bit of Bitcoin to a few people and then tell them to pass it on. Right. And then so everyone is sending each other Bitcoin in the classroom. I tell them about uh, blockchain.info and show them how to save create a wallet and save their save their 17 words, I think it was at the time, you know, and uh, everything was, all the standards have changed at this point. Uh, yeah, and, and it was a lot of fun and I loved it, but then eventually, you know, it was clear that Ecuador was going to make Bitcoin illegal and mm-hmm. the jails in Ecuador, they don't feed you. So like, I was like, you know, I think I'm going <laughs> to bail on this idea and uh, and just continue my crypto journey elsewhere. So I went to Burning Man as I do every year and just kind of was uh, bumming around in the States. I decided to live in a van in the States again, actually a Mm U-Haul. And so at this point, where are you conversing with other crypto people online? Is it on Reddit? It's all on Reddit. Reddit, What was the community there like? Was there like reoccurring names that you would like converse with on frequently? Well, Andreas Antonopoulos videos were like my crack. Mm. I mean, I couldn't Mm. get enough. Mm -hmm. I've probably watched every Andreas Antonopoulos video that existed. Uh, I had a I I had a master's program. So there are the people Mm. in that program and the teachers and and all that. Uh, yeah, that master's program. Who was giving a master's in digital currency? University of Nicosia. What's that? It's a college in Cyprus. Was that literally cryptocurrency or yeah, digital or? currency? So I have a mas- I have the first master's degree in digital currencies that ever existed. First degree in digital currencies that ever right. existed. Is that program still running? Yeah, yeah, still running, still going strong. Andreas Antonopoulos was part of it and teaches a, the first course. It's like a uh-huh. MOOC online that anyone can take. 
And so what, what was actually like the course matter? Because there wasn't, it was in 2013 or 14, there wasn't really much no. to talk about at the time other than just like, yeah, how a blockchain works, right? Yeah, totally. I would say that it was more of a international finance degree and business degree okay. than it was, you know, I learned about how international finance works, the, you know, the Fed, Federal Reserve System, like, like moving money around, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all these different, like, what do na nation states do? How do they move money around? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and there was, there was some crypto stuff. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, like, uh, my first project was, uh, well, later I wrote a white paper for a bike sharing economy, mostly based on mm -hmm. the BitShares protocol and, and their terminology mm -hmm. there. It was like decentralized autonomous corporations. And right. there, you know, there was like little projects like that and, and, uh, and a lot of international banking laws and legal stuff that you learn about. But honestly, I bet the course matter is so different now. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. While you were in tinkering around with BitShares, did you come across Rune Christensen? You know, I I got to meet Rune uh, like while the DAO was happening, but I didn't actually got get to talk to Rune during those days. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. But Rune told me that uh, later on, like, because he was in Seattle a lot and I was in Seattle a lot during the Dow days. And he was like, why are you guys using 16 decimals? That is the dumbest idea ever. You're ruining the standard. Everyone should use 18. And he had a couple other things about the Dow. And we had we had like a nice a nice exchange, maybe arguments, <laughs> maybe arguments about design choices. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really fun. But yeah. So, okay, so this is uh, 2013, 2014. When did Ethereum arrive uh, across your feed of your life? Yeah, so this is, the, the master's degree was 2014, 2015, 2016. It was a two-year degree. And uh, I came about, you know, when I first heard of Ethereum, I thought it was vaporware. That was kind of the resounding opinion of the internet. And I didn't know any of the Ether, Ethereum crew. So I was just... What was the alternative blockchains that weren't Bitcoin? What was the vibe like way back then about like non-Bitcoin oh. things? Like was there Bitcoin maximalism? Oh, as fine. Yeah? No. Really? No? No. I mean, there was a little bit, mm -hmm. but that came from... Uh, that, that was like... What was it? Blockstream. You right. know, Blockstream really created that. And before Ethereum existed... It was it, Bitcoin was much more idealistic. There was still hope that we would change the block size. You know, mm. that was and that was a debate that started really probably even before I heard about it in like 2014, 2015. It was probably there the whole time, just like people expecting it would happen. Uh, and and then Blockstream, who was paying all the devs and, you know, putting throwing money around. Uh, decided that it wasn't good for Lightning Network and their other investments and said no and used a lot of cultural tools to overtake the Bitcoin ecosystem, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and and uh, really pushed the, the small blocks uh, ideas, which anyone who wanted to use Bitcoin for anything cooler than a store of value could see that that's a dumb idea. But, uh, you know, I guess it's... I, in the end, it works out fine. I think the Bitcoin crew the, and the push... During that time, I felt very sad, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 disgruntled because I, I saw the potential of using Bitcoin as a as a as the layer of you know revolution mm -hmm. of an evolution of how we can coordinate as a society around like these 
public goods is now the terminology, but like just around like basically replacing governments with economies, which is what I was always really stoked about that what these tools could do. And uh, yeah, and so I was, I was pretty sad about that approach at the time, but now I feel like it's the right way. Did you blame Blockstream? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, they're, they're by far the lar largest voice uh, pushing that direction. And, uh, you know, it was Blockstream and what was, man, I'm losing all these names and terms. It's been so long. Yeah. Thalias or the, the basically the guy, the moderator of the subreddit, RBTC. Right. And right, our Bitcoin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was also the moderator of a few other things like that guy uh, was censoring everybody and it got it just got really ugly, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, but, you know, before I got into Ethereum before that all started kicking off right. okay. uh, because I wrote. So in my master's degree, there was a, a task to write a will contract using the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm. Right. And so I was like, oh, cool. Uh, can I use Ethereum instead? I had. So I, let's back up a little bit. So I wrote this, uh, I wrote this bike sharing economy white paper, and it was really cool. The idea was like, uh, it was called Bicycles in Kind for Everyone, uh, B-I-K-4-E, but the four was silent, so it was bike, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it would be like a currency that would be printed and vested inside a bicycle whenever you would donate it to the network. So you would bring, you would go and get a network, uh, get the bike and you would steward the bike. But the idea was the bike was owned by the, da the DAC, because mm -hmm. that was the terminology right. at the time, the DAO, yeah. uh, would own all the bikes. And if you were the first bike within like a hundred mile radius, you'd get this bonus of extra tokens that would be held in the bike, right? And then, you know, as more bikes were in that area, then the bonus would decrease. And it was this like, basically printing money to create a bike sharing network, international bike sharing network in cities around the world was the design. Which I think we are definitely now, I mean, there are like electric scooters, electric bikes all over cities, all over the world nowadays. It's just that they're run by corporations, not decentralized corporations. Exactly. And it'd be so cool. And I think that eventually we will see that reality where these things are owned by uh, DAOs and not corporations, but uh, the you know bridging meat space and crypto space is harder than it sounds. So yeah, it's extremely it hard. Hasn't happened yet, but uh, I made that by it was the sharing economy it was really interesting to me, and using that as a gateway to like own collective ownership by communities without governments, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. which is always where I've been focusing on, and uh, I sent that. Uh, I made a video explaining the white paper for my class and I sent that to Slocket, which when I Googled sharing economy, you know, um, Bitcoin, so when I Googled because at the time crypto was barely a term, uh, Slocket was the number one thing that was coming up. And this was way before the DAO or anything. In fact, Slocket had just had a website. When you Google stuff uh, back then, there wasn't much. You know, when I, I was reading all of the media, I could read all of the media. Because there mm -hmm. just wasn't that many people talking about this. Right. And uh, so Slocket came up on my radar and I basically would email them every couple weeks and saying, I will work for free. I want to I support you guys in this mission. Like, pick me up. I'm getting a master's degree. I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. and eventually, Christoph Jens, uh, who was a pretty huge member of the, the early Ethereum uh, community, mm -hmm. he... Uh, 
he would, he saw my video. I was like, this guy's funny. Okay, cool. Uh, mm. And then like, let me work for free. And I was effectively their first employee. So it was like Slocket, uh, the three founders and me, eventually Leftorist joined. And this is 2015. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience with Ethereum and realizing Ethereum is a real thing. Before that, everyone, like if you were just look, a casual Reddit user, Ethereum was vaporware. It will never really work. It was never a thing. They don't have any prototypes. They don't have anything you can use, you know, and and that was the resounding idea. They did a crowd sale and it's a Ponzi. Right. So that's why I asked about like the culture around like non-Bitcoin coins. And, it, and it's weird to hear you say that uh, there was no such thing as Bitcoin maximalism. All these other coins were out there were generally accepted. But then this Ethereum came around, the Ethereum thing came around and it was vaporware. How, how did, why, why do you think people thought it was vaporware at, at Genesis? Because people, because Ethereum raised money and they mm. didn't do what you would call now a fair launch, right? right. Usually most people just uh, would launch the token. That was the prevailing. It was the mere pattern. fact of the fact that they actually just had a raise and they sold the tokens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They raised a bunch of money and then, you know, now they have that money and they're working on stuff. Sure right. they are, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see, where, wh- why aren't you launching something? Where's the, you know, where's mm-hmm. the Genesis block, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so for years, that was the understanding or maybe a year and a half. And then like they started deploying things and, and you could use it. And then it's like, okay, this isn't vaporware. This is interesting. Uh, there was also some design choices, man, that I didn't agree with with Ethereum. You, you know, it's like there's no checksum in the address. Right, you change one I number. I don't know what that means. In every other crypto, mm-hmm. uh, the last few digits of the address is mm-hmm. a checksum. It actually, the last few digits will tell you if the address is a valid address. Okay. So, like, if you change one character in a Bitcoin address, every wallet could tell you that is an invalid address. As in, like, a, it, there are no private keys that associate with that address. Yeah, because uh, or it's more like th- this address is following an invalid format, so it can't be real, okay. right? Because there's these extra, I don't know if it's like four or seven characters or whatever at the end of the address that are derived from the rest of the address. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. th- and credit cards are like this. Every credit card has a checksum and that's how you're, when you type it in online, it they knows. know that that oh, is like uh, a valid, you know, credit card number. Uh, and so this is, not existent in Ethereum, right? And it's just like, why? And why are there so few characters, you know? And like, there's just weird choices, you know? Mm -hmm. There were weird choices. And people at the time when they were talking about these choices, it's just like, why are you doing it? What Mm -hmm. about the rest of crypto? What we learned and what we determined, Mm -hmm. you know? Where's the HD wallets? Where are these things? So uh, yeah, it was easy to hate on Ethereum Uh early on. But then I got into the community and wow, it was so lovey-dovey. So like, I had that will contract, right? I had to write a will contract. And because I had started working for Slocket, I was like, how about I do it in Ethereum instead of Bitcoin? Is that okay, professor? Right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, sure, give it a try. And he didn't know anything about Ethereum and he just thought that was cool. And this project was supposed to take like a week uh, and it was, it was a huge project. I did it in four hours on Ethereum mm-hmm. and I don't know how to code. So like, I mean, I took a coding class in college, but mm-hmm. I'm fresh. And, and so I was like, whoa, 
Ethereum is better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, and while everyone else is like grueling away on this project, I'm like, well, I'm done. <laughs> and, and so then I actually made a blog post for Slock It that was like, hey, how to make how I made a will contract on Ethereum. And it was basically my homework assignment, but mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I'll make it a blog post and hang out with the mm -hmm. Ethereum community. And everyone was so nice. I, my, my expectation was like, I'm going to post this and I'm going to get a bunch of people telling me how shitty it is and how mm -hmm. dumb I am and da da Because that's the crypto community. Right. Yep. But the Ethereum community, it was just all love. Like, oh, that's a really nice try. Oh, that's so cool. That's how you, that's, that's cute. You know, a little right. bit yeah. of that. Oh, that's cute. It's cute and, you but did then, that, yeah. Yeah. But then Absa, Alex Vandesan, who works for the Ethereum Foundation, took the time to show, to and, and was really nice about like, Here's a way that you could reduce the number of lines of code, like because that's really important when you're coding in Solidity, mm -hmm. less surface area of attacks and stuff like that. Or I don't remember what he said, but he was so nice about it and he improved it. And I'm like, where am I? Yeah. Oh, is this crypto? This isn't crypto. This isn't even the internet. This is some rainbow fairyland with unicorns jumping around. Like it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And I was sold right away. I was sold on Ethereum. And I'm like, this is the right. First off, it's easy to work on a non-developer. I'm a technical person, but a non-developer could come in and actually make something that has utility. Mm -hmm. And and everyone's like encouraging me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was blew my mind. With the other like cryptos that were out there, and like you, you talked about how like this homework assignment was meant for Bitcoin, but also in theory you could build anything on any other crypto. As somebody who like watched the development of the communities of all crypto communities as they kind of came up and about. How did the crypto communities change over time? And then can you also just unpack even more the differences between the Ethereum community that was created versus like the Litecoin community and the Bitcoin community that came around in the early days? I think the biggest difference is the money, the focus on money. And I think mm. it, the, the number one thing that built of such a beautiful culture in Ethereum was having RF trader and mm -hmm. our Ethereum. Yeah. Having that separation really allowed Ethereum culture to develop in such an organic, natural, lovey-dovey way mm -hmm. where that like, you know, when you when you think about money, it just brings you into that scarcity mindset and you have this like, ah, number go up, right. you know, only right. up, I don't know, you know, and it's mm -hmm. it's this, you know, it doesn't really come uh, combine well with like, hey, let's advance society together positive and, some games yeah yeah you know funding public goods you know coordination tools like mm -hmm. that these two people these two groups of of things like what's great is you could go in, and have both it's not like it's oh this person is all about that and this person's all about money no it's like when you want to talk about the money and you're ready for that ah, vibe yeah. Then you go there and it's like, oh, yeah, number go up. Cool, cool, cool. But when you want to talk about like, hey, how are we going to make the world a better place? Our Ethereum is there. And no other crypto community had that. Right. I don't know who made that innovation, but it's, in my opinion, it's one of the most important things that happened in Ethereum history. From what I remember, ETH Trader was created because our Ethereum banned price talk. And so it wasn't a, uh, we're going to have these two communities build, be built up simultaneously. It was like, well, a lot of people wanted to talk prices and like all the developers of Ethereum, like uh, Vitalik were like, I don't want to talk about prices. I want to talk about Ethereum. So they made, they banned price talk in our Ethereum. And then as a result, people were like, all right, well, we're going to go to our ETH trader and talk about prices over there. 
I, that's how I remember it happening. Oh, uh, that's great. Yeah, because mm -hmm. I wasn't part of the Ethereum community, really. I just started working mm -hmm. for an Ethereum company, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, that was be, before my Ethereum time. Other, other crypto communities, Dogecoin was great. I love Doge. Yeah. Dogecoin yeah. with the tip bot and like, you know, bringing uh, the Jamaican bobsled team to the mm -hmm. Olympics and, and, and the, the, the Doge NASCAR. community, it was also not about money, right? It was about yeah. like jokes and vibes. Yeah. And, and those were the two uh, Reddit communities I liked hanging out in. Yeah. BitShares was interesting, but like, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't have the right vibes. I also liked Monero. I liked the privacy focus. Like I thought that was interesting, you know, uh, but the rest of the communities, like, Namecoin, Litecoin, uh, all of those things, it was, they were lame. And then Bitcoin was all, be just slowly became all about number go up. Like all the interesting conversations eventually moved from Bitcoin. Those stuff that I would go to uh, our Bitcoin for, they all moved to our Ethereum. And it was a very natural progression for me to just like, I just looked at our Bitcoin less and our Ethereum more. And Eventually, I've you, barely looked at our Bitcoin. Do you think our Ethereum and the Ethereum community kind of like sucked that side of Bitcoin away? Or do you think Bitcoin, the our Bitcoin number go up vibe, pushed the builders out of Bitcoin? Or maybe it's a little bit of both? Uh, uh, definitely both. Uh, you know, it's really hard not to be consumed by your holdings or biased by your holdings, right? Sure. So yeah. everyone had Bitcoin, so everyone cared about Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Right? Right. No one, right. no one didn't care about Bitcoin because right. everyone has a decent. You, chunk you of couldn't not Bitcoin. own Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh -huh. If you cared about crypto, I mean, yeah, you really couldn't because pretty much that's how you'd get the money to an exchange. That's how you would. For most people, Bitcoin is the fiat, and still to this day, it's the fiat on ramp and off ramp. You know, Bitcoin right. has the mm -hmm. the network, the global network where right. you can buy and sell it, whether it's peer to peer or or with exchanges in every exchange, period. You know, I don't know any fiat exchange that doesn't have Bitcoin. Right. That would be right. wild. Uh, I'm sure it'll come soon if it's not already mm -hmm. there. But at that time, not even close. Uh, I think Bitcoin network dominance was well above 95 percent uh, for right. market cap yeah. for most of the totally. time. So, so I tell the story of getting even more just integrated with the Ethereum community. Well, it was all through the DAO, right? So I was a community organizer, and that's what I said I would do for Slocket. I like I like doing community organization. You know, I I'm good with people, and uh, I have a hug a troll approach. You know, when someone's trolling, it's like, ah, mm -hmm. oh, thank you mm -hmm. for the feedback. That's so nice. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, uh, thank you for the troll. Yeah, nice man. Thank you. Appreciate that. But with yeah. Kill him with love. Exactly with sincerity, because I'm not talking to the troll. I'm talking to everyone who's in the chat room, you know, and it's mm -hmm. always good to have that perspective. And and so if the troll says something interesting, but with a negative tone, people might agree with the troll. So you have to be like, well, that's a valid concern for the people who aren't trolls that actually agree with the point that was poorly spoken. Right. And so then it's like, well, ah, da, da. you know, and there's, these are the, the stuff that I learned also just from trying to mm -hmm. keep the Sonics in Seattle, uh, <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly. And then uh, we built one hell of a community. Uh, I'm also an educator. I was a coach. I was a math tutor. I was all these things. So, uh, you know, I created a Dow Ninja course. Right? And, mm -hmm. you know, at the time, the ERC-20 standard was barely standard. And I like the first question in the Dow Ninja course is like, what does approve do? 
you know, which is like mm-hmm. basic knowledge now. But at the time I got wild answers, you know? Um, and so we, we would, we had everyone who would, it was basically a test or an essay type assignment and we graded the homework and different people became down ninjas, you know, and dude, all those down ninjas are rock stars in the Ethereum community today, right? The guy behind yeah. Trueblocks, you know, Jordi Bellina, who ended up, who does so much mm-hmm. and all these, all these uh, OG Ethereum people. It's amazing. And uh, same with the people in Socket that, uh, well, in the DAO chat room that like, became like insiders in the DAO and kind of in that middle layer. Because uh, I would, my community management style is more of a fractal nature. It's like, well, let's create a group of people who are doing community management. And I give them inside information like, oh, hey, here's the blog post that Slocket's going to publish while it's in a Google mm-hmm. Doc. Like, what do you guys think? They'd go in and edit it for us, you know, and they would, for them, they're getting inside information. For us, they're editing our blog posts and giving us important feedback and, you know, and, and then they they would feel like they're in the know and they could be good community management 24-7. So we had a group of like, fit, uh, by the end of it, we had a group of about 50 people that were kind of like on the inside, you know, Kosala and mm-hmm. Taylor from My Ether Wallet, My Crypto and My Ether Wallet now. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, and so like we just, you know, Slocket had such a sexy product. It was the DAO, it was the first DAO. And we were going to build a universal sharing network, uh, which I helped develop a lot of the ideas around, you know, and it was like this idea that we could build a network where autonomous entities or anybody could actually post uh, requests for, uh, you know, for buying and selling things or sharing things, renting things. And it was kind of like Craigslist for anything everywhere. And uh, it was going to be so cool. You could just go to a locker outside of someone's house or maybe on a corner that a few people would rent and it'd have a lock that you'd send Ethereum to, uh, some Ethereum currency. And and then the lock would, maybe you'd send like, maybe there's a power drill in it and there's a a lock, the lock requests $50, right? So you send $50 Mm -hmm. to the lock and then you get the power drill and then you actually bring the power drill back to some dude who sits on his porch, you know, hanging out these times and he checks to make sure it's okay, puts it back in the, in the locker. He gets a dollar and you get, you know, $47 back. You pay $2 to use the drill. And, and then in this way, we can have a sharing economy and we can better utilize scarce resources and, and like manage things. And to the point where maybe you have a drone that comes and opens the lock for you, you know, and the the drone collects money and the drone becomes its <laughs> own autonomous economic agent. And maybe mm-hmm. it's owned by a, a, a drone DAO and people invest in the mm-hmm. drone DAO and the drones are going around providing value. Uh, in fact, we had a hackathon in 2015, I think it was the end of 2015, uh, where with this idea and the person who won it created a solar panel that would charge phones, right? And then it would collect money. And when it had collected enough money, it would put up an ad on the universal sharing network that would say, hey, connect another solar panel. And then it would mm-hmm. check its voltage to see if the solar panel is working and on there. And then when the volt- when that's correct, the solar panel could would release the escrow. And the person who added the solar panel would get paid. And they could add batteries and solar panels. And, the, and it would just charge things. And, they, and then, uh, you know, eventually the solar panel would grow and grow. 
until all of humanity is just working on a solar panel and gets to see the light when the solar panel has a need, you know? <laughs> but uh, that's the dystopian. This is, this is the, the part of the Ethereum culture that I actually kind of miss. Um, I, I came into, 20, into Ethereum in 2017 and a lot, um, by that time, like ICOs had already been like decently tainted, but a lot of like the models for ICOs were crazy stuff like that. Where like we can have just these global networks, we can put cryptocurrency inside of drones and they can deliver goods. Uh, if you need a drill, you can just go find the nearest drill and borrow it rather than going and buying another one and then having that be a private good rather than a public good. And then like it really got people's like imaginations going with like what happens when we have like these global networks that also have money involved with them. Like, I actually kind of really miss that era about Ethereum. Again, sadly, like a lot of these crazy futuristic ideas about what Ethereum could do ended up being turning into like a white paper and an ICO mm -hmm. and then a failure of, a, of an actual product to launch. But I really miss that that because you don't really see these crazy ideological like use cases like what you just discussed in Ethereum land anymore. No. I, I, I kind of miss that. And I feel like the DAO caused a lot of those problems, unfortunately. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Griff thus far. In the second half of the show, this is where we get into all of the story of the DAO. So stay tuned for that, strap in. It is an absolute wild one. But first, before we get there, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you are getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017 and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. 
You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. You know, like, because the mm. Dow wasn't an ICO. The Dow was right. a, a huge raise, right? We raised $150 million, which was way more right. than we intended. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, like, like we thought, well, Christopher, Christoph thought it was going to be 5 to 10. I thought it would be, like, 30. Uh, but, mm-hmm. obviously, 150 was a lot more than all of that. And, uh, and then when we had the hack... It, there was over $200 million in it at the time because right. Ether had gone up so much. Right. And right. and then everyone used that as an excuse to do ICOs because DAOs aren't safe. You know, Slocket didn't get any money. We raised $150 million and we didn't get anything. We were then mm-hmm. going to have to request money from the DAO to do the universal sharing network. And it was really hard. There were lots of problems with that. What was the relationship between Slocket and the DAO? Slocket was a service provider. Okay. So we worked like, you know, for free basically to develop the DAO. And then uh-huh. we were going to ask funding from it. And the DAO was going to be like a, a sort of a collective organization that would fund various projects, not just ours. And, and so the idea was that like Slocket would build the code for the DAO. And then once the DAO was up and running, you would ask for like, hey, because we helped build this thing, can you guys pay us? Not, not retroactively. We actually wanted to build the, so the DAO s- served as our governing body. So we wanted to be an international, oh, okay. sh- the universal sharing network. We wanted to be like, you know, in, not part of any nation state. We wanted to be right. governed by the by the DAO. Property of the DAO. Okay. Yeah. And so we wanted the DAO to be, we were choosing the DAO as our jurisdiction, which lived on the Ethereum blockchain as the main jurisdiction mm-hmm. and not in any specific jurisdiction, right. because what if someone puts weed in the locker, you know, like, <laughs> you know, oh, God forbid, you know, and then what are we supposed to do? And so we to kind of circumvent this. And of course, now legal thought is very different. But to circumvent this, we thought, well, let's just create a DAO. Everyone wants a DAO anyway. And actually, at the time, it was always called, a lot of people were calling it DAO. But Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of the Dao De Ching. And I push really hard to frame it as the DAO, you know, and call DAOs Mm -hmm. DAOs, which I feel Mm -hmm. like very successful at. Now everyone, it's just a DAO, right? Oh, you were the reason why we went from DAO to, to DAO? I definitely made a huge push, huge push. Yeah. At the time, it was kind of, there were people doing both. Uh, right. and, and even the DACs were also acceptable terminology. Right, thing. Right. So mm-hmm. then I pushed. And I think the DAO, because of its success, became oh, its DAOs, right? right. Uh, and because yeah. I was pushing hard and I you know, had some fights, not fights, but discussions with Stefan and, and uh, Christoph about this to get it to be Dow. But I was like, the Dow Day Ching, man. And so we, we, <laughs> we got it. We got it through. And we'll put a pin in that. Uh, I, I, but I, I, I do want to say one other little thing on that, though, because the sure. Dow was not supposed to be its name. It was supposed to vote on its name once it had good governance. So the Dow was a placeholder. <laughs> I did name. not know that. Yeah, it was a placeholder name because the Dow should name itself. But it probably wouldn't have worked out. It probably would have always been the Dow. So I want to actually like go into the story intentfully. So when, when was the first time like the Dow came into your into your brain? 
Like when, when did you first run into the DAO when, or the concept of it? When we were diving into the universal sharing network, we needed a, we needed a solution for the jurisdiction. And we kind of always thought that we would have a DAO, but we didn't know exactly how to play it. At first, it was going to be the Slocket DAO, uh, mm-hmm. and we were going to have our own entity there. And then it was better. We figured, oh, it'd be better if the DAO was a separate entity and we were a service provider working for the DAO and the DAO pays mm-hmm. us. And that mm-hmm. was, that was, so it came from Slocket. Like we, mm-hmm. early on, I, I don't know if the plan was always to have the DAO, but it, it didn't come in my radar for after, until working for them for like a couple months. Okay. So whose idea was the DAO? Probably Christoph Jens and uh-huh. uh, like, he's probably the main brain behind it. Okay. And so he was the guy that triggered the idea to be in other people's brains as well. And eventually people were like, okay, let's do this. How did that story happen? Do you know? Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, DAOs were a major use case of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. That was always like, that was, that was, Ethereum right. is a place where you could build DAOs, right. you know? And, and so the, the idea was there. But also DAOs were very, very different from what we consider DAOs to be now, right? Because right now DAOs are like uh, a di- token-gated Discord and like snapshot vote. <laughs> what, what did people consider DAOs to be back yeah, then? Yeah, you know, I, I think people thought of DAOs more focused on having their own economy a little bit, you know, that it'd be their own, mm. their own token system and a way to collectively govern things. It was, I, I don't think it's changed so much, but uh, I feel like it was less focused on corp- as a corporate entity and more focused on an economic entity right. at the time. Right. I think back to like decentralized Uber, where like Uber, but as code on Ethereum, that's a DAO. Decentralized Airbnb, like that's a DAO. A decentralized drone network that delivers goods. If it's operated by like smart contracts on Ethereum, that drone network is a DAO. That's kind of how I remember it way back when. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there was just like, you know, there wasn't as much, there weren't DAOs. Right. So it was kind of like a lot of people saying everything could be a DAO or this could be a DAO or that could be a DAO. So it was very dispersed. But I don't know. And the, the idea behind the DAO was like, all right, there's going to be all these other littler DAOs. Yeah. But what if we had like a DAO that managed the DAOs? Yeah. And that, that was the idea that became like the DAO? Yeah. Part of the, the DAO, one of the names of the DAO that was going to come up was called the Genesis DAO. Because the idea was the DAO could break into lots of smaller DAOs. It would naturally mm-hmm. do that because anyone who disagreed with a DAO vote could take their money and make a child DAO. And then this, so if people, if like uh, a proposal to come out for uh, some like decentralized Uber uh, or Golem, Golem pr- was going to propose mm-hmm. to the DAO, uh, people voted no, like the mass voted no. But people that voted yes could just make a child DAO and mm-hmm. split and take their funds and make a Golem sub a DAO, you know, a Golem DAO. That would be separate, but a child DAO of the DAO. Right. Mm-hmm. Or people would burn their DAO tokens for the ether that's in the DAO and then it would go into this sub DAO and they would do Golem. And so it was kind of this way that we would just like make here's this self-replicating DAO contract where mm-hmm. everyone just proposes to the DAO. If they get it, they're part of the big club. If they don't, then they probably just create their own sub DAO. And really anyone could start a startup in the DAO ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Were people talking about conversations as the DAO as like a new government? Or like a new, like absolutely or large organization. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's that's the direction that I still believe DAOs will take. Mm-hmm. I actually saw a tweet by my my one of my heroes, Michael Sargum, uh, that was like, 
I wonder if DAOs will if if DAOs to cor- will be what uh, uh, corporation will be to corporations as democracies were to monarchies. Mm, mm-hmm. And I f- feel like well, actually DAOs will be to democracies what democracies will be to demo- to monarchies. Mm. And I really I really do believe that. It's I feel like we have this opportunity to like ch- change the way we coordinate around, you know, things that governments do, which is provide public goods. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't even understand why we have to pay taxes. That, that whole idea is broken to me. If a government is creating value, they should just be rewarded for that value. Mm-hmm. Then we, we shouldn't need taxes. We shouldn't need sacrifice through nonprofits. Mm-hmm. We should be able to create economic models that reward value creation mm-hmm. when it's happening if people really believe that there's value being created. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like we're at the precipice of that. We're so close. Right. So when the the DAO happened and people were like, you know, aping in, it was like one of the first big apes uh, on Ethereum. Were were people understanding that kind of like prospect of what the DAO was? Or like, yeah, that was like, oh, this could be like the new like global order. I don't know about global order, but for the most part, it was like there was high vibes, super high vibes in the community, a lot of interest. And it was it felt like a risk-free investment. Mm. Uh, I mean, in the end, it collected 14% of all Ether in existence. Right. Right. right? So 14% of, you know, all Ether ended up in the DAO because it was like, well, if it doesn't work out, I can split the DAO and get my Ether back. Uh, So it's like, I can be part of this super cool club at almost no risk. Mm -hmm. Were there, were there people talking about like, uh, uh, were there exploits or hacks or bugs at this point in Ethereum or were like the contracts just like not sophisticated enough? Like, there what, was there there were there were of course small bugs and, and things, but not things of there was never anything near the scale. Right. right? All that was there was the Ethereum multisig. That's the only thing the repeat contract that had a lot of value mm-hmm. behind it. It's nothing. There's right. nothing else. Right. So like no then, no one really thought about like, oh, if I put my money in this contract, it could get exploited. That wasn't like a thought that people had. Solidity was eight months old. <laughs> <laughs> so so like, no. <laughs> no. There was we started the whole smart contract auditing like idea. You know, we actually got an audit, mm-hmm. but it was from a normal tech company mm-hmm. that said, hey, yeah, there might be rounding errors. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like that was all we got. Right. So there was no there were no smart contract auditors. They didn't exist. We were buddy buddy with all the people who wrote Solidity, right. you know, Left Harris and, and Christoph were major parts of that uh-huh. and uh, who are our lead devs. And then, uh, you know, Christian Wright Wiesner, like we talked to him all the time uh-huh. uh, and he, he invented Solidity. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to Gavin Wood. Christian Wright Wiesner invented Solidity and uh, and was maintaining it. So the everyone Vitalik reviewed our code. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't get better than that, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but there and and the DAO hack was not a simple thing, right? right? It was very complex. Right. The DAO hack contracts were larger than the DAO contracts. It was multiple contracts that are exchanging money between each other and exploiting this weird little bug that's in a subcontract over here. Really complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. it was hard to spot. Yeah. So it was completely unprecedented. Like not only yeah. there were two unprecedented things, the DAO receiving a ton of money and then like people actually learning like, oh, these things can be exploited yeah. in ways that we had no idea. I mean, people knew it could be exploited, but the, the ways were not known. 
you know, and that and that was actually what happened when we raised so much money. The DAO curators, uh, the subgroup of the DAO that would allow people, they, you had to propose to the curators and get whitelisted before you could propose mm -hmm. to the DAO. Uh, they actually said like moratorium. Uh, it's too big to fail. We have to, we can't mm -hmm. let anyone propose to the DAO until we talk about this a little bit more. Right? And then, uh, but you could still split the DAO, which is where the bug was. So right. uh, people would split. So, so the bug was basically, oh, I'm going to split the DAO, which is like the equivalent of rage quitting these days. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. split the DAO and effectively you say, oh, yeah, here's my DAO tokens to burn. Okay, give me the ether. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, here's right. my DAO tokens to burn. Oh, give me the ether. <laughs> just kidding. You know, It's like putting the quarter down a vending machine with a string tied around it. With a string. Yeah. Pulling it back. Uh -huh. Pulling it back. Pulling it back. Uh, uh, pulling it back 40 times in a transaction, mm -hmm. and then the transaction just fails, but you end up with all the ether. Right. And so, uh, but then, so the hacker did it and stole about 4% of all ether. Sorry, do you want to set that up better? Yeah, I just kind of want to go through the progression a, a little bit. Were you watching like when the DAO got minted? Where were you when that happened? Yeah, when I mean, I was I was in I was in Seattle, I think, mm -hmm. uh, right at, when we launched the the, and, the token generation event. You know, token generation event. Right? Is that what <laughs> I, is that what they I called think it we back called then? It the, yeah. I think we called it token creation. I think mm -hmm. we called it the token creation event. Um, mm -hmm. But and why did you guys do it? Because it wasn't just because you wanted the DAO to function with Slocket. It was more like, what was the motivation behind the DAO? Was it just about like an experiment or like the vision yeah. or, or what? what's we, up? We were excited for DAOs on Ethereum. We were excited right. for to play with these experimental tools for sure. I mean, the business model. Did you have a plan? And did you have a plan like, okay, now that the DAO is minted, like here's the next steps or like that? Oh, was yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, our first steps were to, to okay, launch the DAO and then propose the universal sharing network to the DAO. Right. Okay. Best, best laid plans, but they didn't. But it wasn't about like, all right, like I'm going to be the leader of the DAO, the, the metaphorical no. CEO. Okay. Oh, it was no, just, it was just mint, mint the DAO we, and then have Slocket be a part of it. Our whole legal strategy was that we were not the DAO. Okay. And uh, Christoph didn't have any DAO tokens, and right. no one really, no one else on the team had DAO tokens either. I'm sure. Right. Uh, but I, I actually have in known wallets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, I. I mean, I did. I was. I wasn't worried about these things. I've always been <laughs> irreverent to that shit. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, but yeah. So we 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 intended the DAO to be a pure DAO, and that was definitely the idealistic like mm -hmm. motivation, but at the same time, we had a business model right. that could back it up. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea was like to basically give the gift of the DAO to the broader Ethereum community. It's like, Hey, here's this thing we made. You guys go build it. Also. Yeah. Here's slock it. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Here, here's this thing we made and mm -hmm. we built the community. Right. Right. I mean, we had, one of the largest slacks in crypto right. by far. Uh -huh. Everything was on Slack at that time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God <laughs> everyone moved had away from that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, for a while it was chaos. There was people using Riot. There were mm. people using everything. You know, mm. Keybase. Right. And then now we've all settled back on Discord. Mm -hmm. It feels feels good to be all in the right. same temp. Uh, but anyway. Uh, okay. So you guys mint the DAO. Yeah. So money starts coming in. How fast did money start coming in? Oh, man. A bunch of money came in the first few few days mm -hmm. and then it was like a slow trickle mm -hmm. until the last so there was a 28 day period and the first 14 days 
were uh, supposed to be like one ether for a hundred DAO tokens, mm -hmm. and and they were. But then there was actually a miscalculation on an off by one error, and the fifteenth day also had the price of one DAO token for one ETH, uh, for or sorry. Uh, one ether for a hundred DAO tokens, and so mm -hmm. it was almost like, oh, you get an extra day of cheap DAO tokens, right. which was, was, it, was another it, huge. Was push. it a, a bonding curve or something? How did the price change it, over it time? It was a step curve, yeah. Okay. And so then, uh, and that's why we had an off by one error because it was like, okay, and then it'll step to uh, 1.05 ether for a hundred DAO tokens, huh. 1.1 ether. But the first step was just to one ether, and <laughs> it was uh -huh. like, oh, damn it, we didn't totally miss that. And then uh, in the code, you know, uh, and so. We just basically there was this extra day where DAO tokens were cheap, uh -huh. which just allowed way a bunch of extra FOMO. Uh -huh. And I think we raised somewhere around, you know, a hundred million dollars at that point, uh -huh. you know, uh, in that first round. And then the next fifty million dollars over the next fifteen days fourteen days where it was stepping up. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then we had a uh, hundred and fifty million dollars in the DAO and right before the end. You know, we're Did all you like, like sh shit your pants? I was stoked. I was having a blast. <laughs> I didn't do the. I I'm not a developer. You right. know, Left Terrace and Kristoff were f shitting their pants. Okay, Kristoff, Kristoff actually physically vomited. Oh when my he god! Found out there was a hundred million dollars in the Dow. He was at a dinner and he had to leave the table and he went and puked because he was so nervous about the code. You know, right. I, I mean. A hundred million dollars in code where the language is eight months old, you know, and is and he wrote it, you know, and it's like him and Lefteris wrote this. Lefteris was a little bit more chill about it. Kristoff uh -huh. was, you know, sweating bullets. Right. And I was having a great time. Like all the community, the uh -huh. vibes were so high, you know, like, yeah, we're all high five, digital high fives, you know, it's like, this is insane. This is going to be huge. But then at the very end, there was, uh, you know, the curator, there, Vlad Zamfir, Eamon Gunsarir, who does Avalanche now, yeah, uh -huh. and this guy Dino Marks came out with this thing called the moratorium. And it was like, hey, like we is too, the DAO is too big to fail, basically. Uh, we have to like, like stop and rethink things. The design mm -hmm. could have these improvements. Mm -hmm. And maybe since there's 14% of all Ether in existence and we plan on doing proof of stake later, we should just like, you know, try to figure out how to upgrade the DAO and make some improvements right. to it before we go. And right. so that's what Slocket was spending most of their time on, like mitigating this thing and being like, hey, like our first proposal was, hey, let's like increase the security of the DAO. Let's have 24 seven surveillance and 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 like uh do better audits and all this stuff and uh we were trying to get whitelisted to you know collect some funding to do that and uh that's when i found out it's actually really hard to get money out of a dow uh you have to you have to design the dow so it's easier to get money out of them because people don't want to spend their money on things mm -hmm. uh, it's really easy just to say no to right. spending money right so collect unless only. there's a Collect only, yeah. never pay. Exactly, yeah. right? And that's that's like the collective, like, yes, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, spending money on security, uh, I don't know. Right. And, and, I mean, there's nothing that that proposal would have done anyway, though, because uh, maybe two weeks after the DAO was launched and had all the money in it, and we were, like, scrambling to figure out how to deal with this moratorium, uh, there was a revision to the docs of Solidity. 
that was like, oh yeah, we have this call function before all these lines of code. Oh, there's a reentrancy bug. We need to put the call function after all the lines of uh, of, mm -hmm. of code. And so, the, and then we had Chris, and we we're like, oh crap, you know, we don't do that in our in our right. code base. So went to went, went to Christian and went to, went to other people and like, is this going to cause any problems? And lots of people looked at it and they're like, no, no, no. We made this blog post that was like. Hey, there's a bug, but the DAO is safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! Uh, Stefan really got it for that one, man. Do you think? Uh, do you think that was the post that alerted the would be the, the future attacker to the fact that there was an exploit there? Yeah, probably could have been. Yeah. I mean, uh, who knows? Uh, who knows? Because no one knows who the DAO hacker is. Although uh, there are rumors, of course, of various people that it could be. Mm -hmm. But no one knows for sure, and I don't think anyone will unless the person actually says, "Yeah, it was me." Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a hard thing to prove. Different rumors have it like, oh, well, this wallet was associated to, to this Poloniex account. And it looks like mm -hmm. somehow eventually it paid the gas here. So maybe it's connected to this person or that person. But it's like, well, maybe they just sold crypto to right. some random dude. Right. right. So right. it's hard to say. And. Right. And uh, do you think the the DAO hacker was a member of the DAO? Probably they had to be because they had to have DAO tokens. So the, I mean, they ah. could have bought it. They could have bought it in the exchange, though. I mean, I'm. The thing is, everyone was a member of the DAO. There was right. Ethereum was the DAO at that time. If you didn't, right. weren't right. You, you 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 didn't hold Ethereum off an exchange. You know, like right. And even Ethereum and the DAO were like almost anonymous. Absolutely. I mean, our DAO curator list was like. The Ethereum Foundation, effectively, right. you know, <laughs> it's like all the, the who's who because Christoph Jens was like, you know, he was a, the core tester for all the clients. So he would make sure that the clients were in sync for all the launches up until that point before he started Slocket with his brother and, and brought in Stefan. Stefan used to be the community manager for Ethereum. And it was like this is this was the core, you know, a, a huge heart. And soul of Ethereum right. was Slocket. So, right. And the Ethereum was all about like coordination technologies, right? So it seems to be like, all right, like now that we have this Ethereum thing, let's do the coordination thing. So it, it seems like from the perspective of the early days of Ethereum, it's like, all right, like we just now we make a DAO now. That's what we do. Like we made the we made the blockchain. Now we make the DAO. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. The Ethereum blockchain was for DAOs. It was for coordination. Right. So that was the yeah. thing. How can you not? And it's a risk free investment, right? Right. <laughs> what can go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong? So after the DAO started collecting like way more money than it was ever expected, did like the game plan change mm. or like did what changed as a result of that? What changed is the expectations of being able to get a decent chunk of change from the DAO. I mean, we were looking mm -hmm. for just a small amount of money to get started as a startup, mm -hmm. but crypto numbers are just audacious is what we discovered. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I flew to Germany. I had never met most of the Slocket team at that point. And I flew, flew to Germany. Well, I flew first, I flew to London to be with Stefan for a week and then went to Mitvida, this small town where Christoph Jens and his seven kids and like stuff and his brother with his with 11 kids, you know, like oh this gosh. time, this, yeah, it was a while. It was fun having dinner with the families, you know, uh, and that's where I was when the Dow hack happened. It was like at, mm. at Christoph's mom's house, Uma Jens. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, so how did that notification come into your brain? How did you hear that the Dow was getting 
Something something was up with the DAO. Well, a community member was sending links because we were in uh, in in Europe. So I woke up at like I don't know six thirty in the morning or something, and uh, but people in the U.S. were already awake, and they had seen something on EtherScan, and they're like, "Hey, is there a bug on EtherScan?" And there's this guy Mo, and he sent me that link, and I was like looking at it, and I'm like, "Ooh, uh." I don't think this is a bug on EtherScan because it's on Mist as well. You know, uh, Mist was the Ethereum wallet at the time. I, I remember it. Uh, I remember it. And so then I send that. I, I'm like, yo, Christoph, I'm like demon dialing everyone until uh-huh. I get a hold of uh, uh, Christoph's brother, Simon, who's a founder of Ethereum as well. He's the only, per- he was the first person, other person to wake up. I'm like, you got to get a hold of Christoph. And everyone fucking else, you know, and we're, mm-hmm. I mean, we're alerting everybody that we can uh, to look at this because it was, it was at least, uh, yeah, I mean, I basically got to sound the alarm, right? Uh, that right. it was real. Uh-huh. And then. So wait, what did you think was happening? Did you say, like, oh, somebody is stealing money from the Dow or like what, what yeah. did you, what would did you, did you suspect? No, I mean, cause we could, we could see it. It was like a split, the split functions were being mm-hmm. called. So it's like, okay, this, I don't know exactly what's happening, but. You know, at first it was like, is someone splitting the DAO with that much money, right? But then it was every every other block, this function mm-hmm. was being called. So it was like, oh, no, this is just weird with the same person. And, mm-hmm. and so we could, yeah, we knew pretty quickly it was a hack. Mm-hmm. I mean, minutes. Right? So when there was no hacks before the DAO, how did you guys even know what to do? Like, what was the game plan? <clears throat> Ask Vitalik. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that was the thing. We didn't know what to do, but we knew we had to say, I, I mean, I knew we had to say something to the community. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we can't just say something like, hey, we're hacked, we're fucked. You know, mm-hmm. we have to give them something to do, something they can do to help. So the idea was that we could slow down the network. We could spam the network mm-hmm. as a community and slow down the hacker while we look at other strategies. So I wrote this like little post in the Slack. It's like, at everyone, this is not a drill. The Mm -hmm. DAO is being attacked. Uh, Here's what you can do to help us slow down the attacker. All the geniuses in Ethereum are on this right now, looking at at it, seeing what we can do. uh, And and then now go. And probably within an hour or two after I made that post, Vitalik was already talking about a hard fork being the best solution. No, Vitalik, and, he figures it out like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It was like, yeah, I mean, in the end, you know, Vitalik is the shelling point, right? right. Vitalik is the uh-huh. decider. And it's like, well, if he is on board, that's a, then that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it was the only solution. I mean, before right. the hack was even over, that that was the plan, uh, basically. Or that was the 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 strongest opinion. And then it was like, well, what else can we do? Because hard forks, at right. the time, hard forks were unheard of. Right. Unheard of. The blasphemy. No one yeah. does that. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're still, they are, right. So. Well, Ethereum, had it hard forked yet? Uh, I mean, it had it had upgraded to, uh, from from Homestead to, like, from Frontier to Homestead. Homestead, okay. But it, right, so it had had its first, uh, like, upgraded planned hard fork. Yeah. Wait, but you're saying this is like the, the going to be the first unplanned, like contentious hard fork. This is a contentious hard fork. This is like, right. hey, let's make an irregular state transition and, and right. hack the hacker hard mm-hmm. fork, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and and what made that possible was that when the DAO 
is split, mm -hmm. the money goes into a child DAO, which then has its own creation phase where uh, it can raise money from other DAO token holders for 28 days. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, uh, and then from those 28 days, the money would then be released and then the person would have to call a split DAO function uh -huh. uh, to move it to another place, another address. Uh, and that would take five, uh, sorry, that would take seven days. So there was 35 days where the money was guaranteed to be in this one address. That is such a crazy property of this story because basically the way that the DAO works is that if you wanted to exit your money from the DAO, you had to have a 28-day waiting period, which saved the whole entire operation. The fact that that was true saved perhaps all of Ethereum, honestly. Yeah. Like there's a potential world where like without that property about the DAO, like the DAO hack would have been successful. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like you, you we wouldn't have been able to hard fork Ethereum if the ether got out of the DAO, got out of the contracts, and then no. intermingled with the rest of the economy, because you can't hard fork away at that point in time. Yeah, because then they send it to exchanges, they send right. it to different things. Their money is not their money. They get away with it, right? Anymore, right. And, and we don't want to take from other people. We want to hack the hacker, right? And it's not even for saving the DAO and the DAO token holders. Hey, they were investing in something that was risky, right? Uh, whether they knew it or not, it was the truth. Uh -huh. So. It's about, hey, we're going to go to proof of stake. This guy clearly has ill intent mm -hmm. for the community. Right. Do we want someone with, with ill intent to hold 14% of all yeah. Ether in existence? Right. Right. You know, like, because he only stole a third of it. Actually, the, the, my, so then I, I split up, split off with uh, other Dow ninjas mm -hmm. basically to form the first, it was the Robin Hood group, <clears throat> and we stole the rest of the money. So, Dow Hacker took $50 right. million. Dollars. We took $100 million. Dollars. Right. And we're, we're, we hacked the rest of the Dow so no one else could. Actually, we strategically waited until someone else started hacking the Dow. Uh, but we had already been playing like war games uh -huh. and had amassed massive capital uh -huh. so that every one transaction that we hacked the Dow with, we have so many Dow tokens that it's not a quarter. It's like a stack of thousand dollar bills, you know, that uh -huh. we're sticking into the coin machine and pulling out with the string, okay. you know, while everyone else is using quarters. Mm -hmm. So we just, you know, we just dominated the, the Dow right. wars, basically. And, and it was like you guys were hacking the money first because you guys were the white hats, right? Yeah. yeah. And we had all the money. Right. Uh, so we actually waited till someone else. We waited. We made sure that we hacked second um, for two reasons. One was kind of like legal like, you know, like, oh, we're we're not choosing to hack the DAO. We're doing it on necessity to protect, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other reason was, honestly, I, I wanted it to be messy. You know, like, if the if the DAO uh, hack was simple, then maybe the hard fork doesn't happen mm -hmm. because, oh, it's just this address. There's lots of solutions, right? But then when it's like, oh, there's like, and there ended up being about 10 DAO hackers, right? Mm -hmm. So that's messy. There's lots of money right. all over the place. And, and in the end, we, we were able to hack all of the small, there were major DAO wars. It was crazy, man. Like it was like, and it was almost like the matrix at the time, you know, right. where you're looking at the blockchain and like waiting for transactions right. to happen. Watch, watching the ones yeah. and zeros. And yeah. like, uh -huh. the byte code. And it's like, okay, go, 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 you know? And, and then it was, it was insane, man. Those are insane times. And that's what an experience. Yeah. We ended up being able to hack all of the s small other hackers. Mm -hmm. We there was this other money aside that was called the extra balance. And we were able to request the extra balance into the DAO and then make a proposal to actually spend that money into and to buy DAO tokens in all of the sub DAOs besides the big mm -hmm. one to give us 
51% majority in all of the White Hats, 51% majority in all the other child DAOs that had hacked the DAO, mm -hmm. and then uh, take over their DAOs and take the money mm -hmm. out of them. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was, it was nuts. But we, we, uh, you know, right before the hard fork, we, we actually also bought DAO tokens in the dark DAO. Uh -huh. And, but then the hard fork happened and we thought, well, the hard fork happened. They, you know, ether works. Like we knew ETC would exist, but we thought mm -hmm. it had no value. Why would it ever have value? Because, you know, like everyone who has ether has ETC they would just dump it. No one right. cares about ETC. And then, then we started hearing these rumors. And like, and so we could have kept taking actions to actually stop the dark DAO uh, on the ETC chain and do like this kind of um, basically a game of stalemate mm -hmm. where we threaten to hack the, the, the dark DAO so he can never make a proposal to pull money out. He always has mm -hmm. to keep splitting into a child mm -hmm. DAO, into a child DAO, into a child DAO. And we just try to each hack the child DAOs mm -hmm. continuously, hacking each other. You just grief them until the end of time? Yeah, every yeah. 35 days. And that was the biggest argument for why we had to hard fork. Because otherwise, every 35 days, we would have to hack the dark DAO mm -hmm. to you know stop them from pulling out the money. So we just, every 35 days, there would be DAO wars. Like, mm -hmm. a, like be, you'd mark it on the calendar and that's, that was going to be our job, you know? Uh, For the so rest we of had time. To, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you think there's enough spam on the Ethereum network already, you know? So, <laughs> uh, so, so it was a clear argument, had to hard fork. But then after the hard fork, we thought Ethereum Classic was dead. So we didn't end up, you know, executing the plans that we need to execute to stop the dark mm -hmm. DAO from splitting. And so they, the dark DAO had already split by, uh, by the time... We, we found out Ether Classic was going to be a thing. Like people started, there was like this undercurrent of like um, people trying to buy Ether Classic tokens from large Ethereum holders for a penny mm -hmm. uh, all over the place, right? And uh, it turns out that was probably someone related to Barry Silbert, who runs the DCG, because Barry Silbert was like the biggest Ethereum Classic maxi that right. ever existed and right. he also owned a large part of poloniex and so poloniex when Pol you know after a while poloniex listed ether classic as on their exchange and you know uh and and barry silbert's making these tweets like i will never hold it, the uh, or etc is the only altcoin that i will ever hold you know mm -hmm. and so all these bitcoin maxis ended up rallying around this idea that, you know, Ether Classic is a way to destroy Ethereum. Right. And enemy of my enemies, my friend. Yeah. yeah. And, and that like, well, and, and also this like uh, social approach. So this is another thing that happened right after the DAO hack. Everything was pretty chill in the DAO Slack. But three days after the DAO hack, there was a mass flood of like internet trolls. And we couldn't control the community anymore. It was a social attack. Mm -hmm. And we found out later that it was likely this group from Bitcoin that was called um, the Dragon's Den, mm -hmm. which was like uh, this under, right. underground like troll army mm -hmm. that would be unleashed on different projects. When, and, and of course, we were targeted after the hack as a, as a, you know, right. a way to fight, you know, to promote Bitcoin maximalism probably by Blockstream, which is probably why I have something against Blockstream. But, 
<laughs> so so uh, that that was I felt like this ETC is like kind of a continuation of this mm-hmm. like how do the this opportunity from Bitcoin Maxis to use the DAO as a way to destroy Ethereum and to use ETC as a way to like basically undercut right. the legitimacy of Ethereum mm-hmm. saying like, hey, right. the, you know, immutability right. is important. Like ETC is the is the real Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And, and all that that whole story. So when the hard fork was, everyone it, it seemed that everyone just fell in line with the hard fork idea. How was the hard fork actually scheduled? Was it scheduled for just like the day before the hacker was able to get their money out? Like yeah. when, when did the hard fork actually happen? Two days. Two days before? Two days before, yeah. yeah. Just just because like there's the two day buffer? So it's like yeah. 33 days. 33 days after the after the hard after the hack. And then how did the yeah. DAO actually like unwind after that? It was a state transition. Mm-hmm. And so what state did it change and how did that change the properties of the DAO? And then how did the DAO progress forward after that? Yeah, it was a an irregular state transition is the technical term. A lot of people think it mm-hmm. was like a rollback, like the DAO never happened. Right, but yeah. if you go on the blockchain, all those things happen. It was just on this right. block. I think it was like 1,900,020, 920,000, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there was this irregular state transition that basically any uh, any contract that matched the bytecode of the DAO, uh, mm-hmm. all of the funds that were in it were taken and then mm-hmm. uh, given and put in this withdrawal contract. So mm-hmm. all of the child DAOs, which there were well right. over 70 uh, uh-huh. child DAOs, split DAOs that had money in it, and the dark DAO and all the white hat DAOs and the DAO itself, which had like just a few ways of ether, right? All of that was taken and put into the the withdrawal contract and anyone with DAO tokens could then withdraw their, their money from the withdrawal contract. But it's not that clean. That's the thing. So uh, I was, I basically self-appointed myself to take the cleanup mission, right? Because there are all sorts of edge cases. Uh, the people who had those, the child DAO money, right? They didn't have DAO tokens. They had child DAO tokens. So uh, they couldn't get their money out of the DAO. They had to get their money out of this, uh, you know, out of their own DAO. And so they could go to ETC and run some DAO transactions, make a proposal, get the ETC out that they split, right. but they couldn't get the Ether. So we had to make a small contract for every DAO child DAO so they could get Ether. And basically there was a clawback function in the in the withdrawal contract and me, Vitalik and Vlad Zamfir and a few other people, I think six other people uh, were on the, the new curator multisig, which then could claw back money from the DAO contract uh, and make sure that, uh, but just money that uh, there were no DAO tokens for, right? Right. Uh, so, right. and then, and so then we could- So that, that was a process of just human verification. And that's why it needed to be a multi-sig? Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so yeah. if there's no DAO tokens to claim the money that's sent to this contract, uh-huh. that's in this contract, then that uh-huh. money would be stuck. So that must be somebody's. So then this multi-sig right. has to, f- can figure out all the edge cases. And the, the other edge case were the people that put um, money into that last half of the DAO raise. The DAO. So mm-hmm. then those people would... Uh, they, they paid more than one Ether for every 100 DAO tokens. So there's the extra balance people. But they actually had mm-hmm. a token that they could use then to claim money. So Nick Johnson, who does ENS, Bulky Puba, and, and, um, and then us, we, we made sure that there was a, um, we audited a, an extra balance withdrawal contract. 
And actually, one you know, funny story. Uh, I don't know if you know Alexi from Turbo Geth. Uh, he was mm. uh, he was one of the biggest trolls during the Dow Diet days. Biggest trolls, and I, I hated this guy. But I hugged him, you know. But I hated him uh, for sure. And then he. Uh, he didn't, you know, he ended up splitting the DAO. I got, I made, I had a lot of respect for him when I found out that he was trolling the DAO. He was pissed at the way the DAO was organized and structured. And then he, he walked the walk. He actually split his money from the DAO way before the hack. But then he didn't get the DAO money out of his split DAO in time. Mm. So then his money was taken with the rest of the child DAOs. And then he stepped it up and saved the day for everyone. He was like our number one dev in this like uh, edge case scenario. And eventually went from being like the most hated troll, at least from Slocket and, and the crew, because he was always really smart and really making it hard, talking a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. You know, when smart people talk a lot of shit, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so then he, he ended up uh, being like our biggest ally in making all mm -hmm. the contracts and doing really, making really smart um, solutions for a lot of these problems that we were having of how do we give people the money back. Right. Uh, and and there were is there still money in that contract oh, or yeah. did all of the ether got claimed? No, there's so much money, dude. There's hundreds of millions of dollars that's still unclaimed from the DAO. Wow. Although now DAO tokens are have new numismatic value, right? So actually, well, what value? Numismatic, like like an old coin, you know? Oh, okay, yeah, sure, like, sure, sure. Like, like, a, like a, oh, an artifact, this, yeah, yeah. It's an artifact that is backed by ether, but there's a there's a DAO museum mm -hmm. that actually uh, has a unit of kind of a fork of Uniswap. I mean, it uses Uniswap, but a fork of the front end because the DAO token wasn't an ERC-20 token. Mm -hmm. So it has, like, it doesn't work well with Uniswap, but it uh, it has enough stuff to use Uniswap if you change the front end and the, and, and the stuff. So he made, like, a DAO museum, and the actual market price for DAO tokens is, like, well over twice what they're worth if you go and try to pull out the ether. Actually claim the ether? Yeah. I Wow, I didn't know that DAO tokens actually had a market value. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's probably because it's off the radar due to the uncompliant ERC-20 token standard that it has. Yeah. And and side tokens too, you know, so the old die. Yeah. I think that's going to have numismatic right. value. Is sure. I didn't sell any of my side. Totally. Oh yeah, probably. no, I I saw I, I still have seven side. Oh yeah, baby. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have fat side. Yeah, <laughs> I have fat side. Is the only thing I'm as bullish on as ether. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah, no, uh, dude. I, I think that's a good. That's a good call. And and like for mm -hmm. DAO tokens, I needed DAO tokens because uh, they would eventually. I would need to pass votes in the DAO. People would send DAO tokens to the DAO, you know, mm -hmm. and and then but we could try to get them out and then like mm -hmm. refund their money, you know. And so for two mm -hmm. years, I was cleaning up all the mistakes people were making in the withdrawal process right. and making sure mm -hmm. that like people could get their money back. Well, mostly through Giveth and the Giveth Slack and. Right and helping out there. So zooming all the way out, what did you learn? Oh, from the DAO? I mean, yeah. well, smart contract development is pretty serious business. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> always cap. You know, uh, now I'm working in uh, this token engineering commons, right? And token engineering mm -hmm. is, is a really nascent field of study. And uh, there's a lot of lessons from the DAO in that kind of thing. It's like controlling the configuration space, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is possible with your system, make sure you know and can test what is possible. Like you saw the Fay uh, explosion, right. right? Where they raised a mm -hmm. billion dollars, but then you know that made their governance token, you know, one of the top tokens in crypto mm -hmm. for a brand new 
project. Like, come on, right. and then instant dump and just destruction of the peg and everything went out of control. If they would have just controlled the configuration space, they, they wouldn't have had that issue. Like, they, I'm sure they tested to raise, you know, $100 million or something, uh, but they didn't test to raise a billion. So, right. Right. Uh, these these sorts of things. Also, you know, the biggest lesson was immutability is a cultural like idea and concept. Mm -hmm. At that mm -hmm. time, everyone thought immutability was a, a natural right. principle of blockchain. Like it's a technical property. Yeah, but no, it's a cultural value, and mm -hmm. uh, in the end, like it's it's one that's held dearly, but not as dearly as others. Right. So, right. the community rules <laughs> all in crypto. And, and, and that's why we call it the Layer Zero podcast yeah. and because it's it's people all the way down. And so when we talk about immutability as like a cultural icon, I always start these shows off by saying cypherpunks know that the code they write creates social systems. Um, it's because the buck stops at the humans that run the code. So it's really important to talk to the humans that run the code. And economics is a social science. Right? Mm -hmm. It's not hard science. This, this, this right. is this is just the reality of things. You know, I feel like, uh, and this is one of the things we're doing with the token engineering commons too. It's like, you know, the, we gotta we gotta make sure we have conflict resolution. We have to make sure that we have like good community building because that is what this is all about. We're building communities that have an economic underpinning, but we're building communities. So, how, what do communities need? Well, Griff, this was a, a fantastic story, and I think this is a great place to end it. But do you also want to tell the listeners a little bit about more in detail about what you're up to with Giveth and all that action going on over there, and also sure. just where people can find you on Twitter and stuff like that? Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, man, there's a lot of stories. You know, there's a parody multi-sig hack that the White Hack Group did. Uh, like, let me just give, like, the next, like, four years really quick. Yeah, sure. Because, you yeah, know, that was 2016. Sounds like we're going to have to do this again. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, a year later, well, we started the DAO, we made a mini meek contract we we did a, a bunch of like white hat actions for different ICOs that failed and then there was the big one which was the parity multi-sig hack where we rescued 210 million dollars and like scared the hell out of the Ethereum foundation for a little bit but they um, and then and then gave it all back to everybody uh, and then there was the next parity multi-sig hack where they mm -hmm. they just mm -hmm. froze all their money and and then you know there was a lot of efforts to support uh, open source block explorers and scaling solutions that were all done through Giveth. And Giveth has been uh, a fixture of the Ethereum community for a long time, especially in 2018, because we've been running off of donations since the beginning. Uh, it, was, it was basically the White Hat Group started Giveth after the DAO, and it was the place where people went to claim their DAO tokens and understand like all, all the basically customer support for the DAO. And then also, <laughs> also like uh, a charity platform. And the idea yeah. of Giveth and, and what I've been working on to this day since the DAO is really focused on how do we replace or how do we build a third way to fund public goods? Right now we have governments and nonprofits. Nonprofits rely on sacrifice and donations. And it's just Poor, poor, a poor incentive structure to say the least, right? And yeah. governments rely on taxes, which effectively is sacrifice and, and the use of force, and they have a monopoly every, over every public goods vertical. When a bureaucrat collects their salary, you know, they get it whether they make good decisions or bad decisions. There's no, it's another poorly designed incentive layer, right? We can do better. And uh, the problem with public goods and, and the value that governments and, non, and nonprofits provide is that they're providing non-excludable value. There's no customers. There's no way to create a business model. 
but you can create an economic model. And cryptocurrencies have done this all for, for, for a decade. You know, uh, Bitcoin is basically an open global payment system. Anyone in the world can create a Bitcoin address and receive currency from peer to peer. There's no cost. Don't get me wrong. There's also like to send currency, you have to pay a little bit and stuff. But this is a public good. Anyone can create an Ethereum, uh, can create a Bitcoin address or an Ethereum address. And there's no, there's no uh, cost to that. And there, there's no, it's, it's non-excludable. Anyone can do it. And it's non-rivalrous. It's public good. And it's funded through economic means. We're printing money to fund the, create, the development of the network. And so I think that we can take that into meat space. And Giveth's approach is to start with the nonprofits. These are the communities that are really doing it. So we have to educate them. We have, they're the ones creating public goods in a, in a bottom-up bottom up way. And so let's cherish them. Let's make it easy for them to raise money on crypto. So with Giveth, we, you can just go on. If you have a favorite nonprofit, they log in with their Google account and they, collect, uh, they get an Ethereum address and then they can start raising money like they would on Kickstarter or, or Indiegogo or GoFundMe. Same, same process with one difference. They use Ethereum. You know, that's it. And then uh, our goal is to then like, hey, once they've raised a thousand dollars, say, hey, did you know Google can steal your money? Maybe you should download MetaMask, right? Just like one step. And then we create a slippery slope and we're about to launch a give token, the give token, which will be used for governance over the platform. And the idea is that every time you donate to one of these projects, you'll actually earn give tokens in return. Mm -hmm. So, and it, but it's not earned like you can, it's more like a tax deductible donation. You still donate and you'll just get reimbursed a little bit of your donation in this governance token, which then allows you to have, uh, you know, governance rights over the Giveth platform. We'll use a, a conviction voting and a gardens, uh, which is a really cool thing that I probably don't have time to go into. Uh, but then the, that will govern the give economy. And, uh, but also you'll be able to use the give tokens eventually to stake behind these projects. And so if you lock your give tokens behind a, a project, then they will get more givebacks. They're donors. All, when someone donates to a give pro, uh, project on Giveth, all the money goes to the charity, all of it. There's no, like, we don't take a cut. But then we also give, give tokens for the next five years. We will be giving away a million give tokens every two weeks to donors on the platform. And, uh, if it, up to 75% of the donation. So it's always a donation. You're not, you're always losing money when you donate. That's, that's still true, but we're going to mm -hmm. reimburse us up to 75% of it. And then with those tokens, they can stake behind projects and the projects that have more give tokens staked and locked for a longer time will end up getting, uh, the donors will get more give tokens than projects that don't have any give tokens staked. Ah. Everyone will get give backs who donates to verified projects but uh, the, the staking will allocate more givebacks to different projects. So we have this curation mechanism. The goal of Giveth uh, and this ecosystem is to replace the government service, the 501c3 government service with an economy, right? And so, uh, the, but the real dream is that when there's enough give tokens staked behind one of these projects, we will actually use those tokens to initialize a bonding curve which I'm not going to go into so much, but it's super cool because you can create a micro economy with this bonding curve, 
where you can have accurate price discovery for low liquidity markets. And But anyway, you end up with uh, printing money for this charity. You just give them free tokens. And then the people who were staking give tokens, they also get a bunch of tokens. Everyone makes money because of magic internet money. Sorry, but it's true. And uh, mm-hmm. they may all make money on paper. All those tokens have to be vested so they don't like have a run on the bonding curve. But uh, then this project who... Maybe they started out, they didn't know anything about Ethereum. They just logged in with Google. But as they advanced in their education and in their success in the give giveth system, they eventually end up with their own economy. And with their own economy, they can start rewarding themselves and their community for the value that they're being created. And they can be rewarded and invested into, right? If you, every time a project with a bonding curve will end up with a, uh, with with a donation, the donation still goes 100% to the charity, but the givebacks will go into the bonding curve, create project tokens, increasing the price of the project token, and then those project tokens will go to the donor. The donor effectively becomes partially invested in the future economy of this ecosystem, and people could just come in and speculate on the future donations of this charity, and they could just buy and invest in that economy and have an upside by supporting this charity because now there's a bonding curve, there's an economy behind it. And so, and this has always been the dream of Giveth is to somehow create this system where nonprofits come in and they educate and skill up and eventually end up with their own economy. And so now we have that roadmap in place and we're just about to execute it. Super excited about that. That's awesome. It sounds like what it is, is like a a flywheel in a box. Yeah. It's like, hey, bring your nonprofit. Like, we are your flywheel. Just plug in this flywheel and here you go. Yeah. To- no, totally. Uh, and, and here's the, you know, it might take years for you to get, you know, educated enough to be able to hold your own keys and, and understand that people don't have to sacrifice to support you as a nonprofit. Like, there's a lot of, like, relearning. Right. Like, your right. labor has value. That idea is like the hardest part of this whole process. Just like real, just like getting people to appreciate the value that they're they're creating by you know their nonprofit work. Uh, but so that's the that's the giveth approach, and that's like the kind of indirect, let's like slippery slope nonprofits into economies. But then there's the direct, like let's just build public goods focused economies, and that's the common stack approach. So we have our pilot project with the Token Engineering Commons, and uh, this is, will be the first public goods focused economy that's like explicit. This is what we're doing, and this is all we're doing. And the goal is to create micro economies to compete to provide public services. So instead of having a government with monopoly over every public goods vertical, we create a repeatable pattern where anyone can effectively create a public goods startup. They can receive investment and basically follow the normal venture capital model. But instead of their venture capital model requiring customers, their uh, venture capital model is built on an economic system where they are providing public goods as the output, but competing with donations for the input. Mm. So instead of it being like, oh, it's more like, okay, I want to help orphans. I want to, you know, prov- I want to support a food bank. I could donate mm-hmm. or I could invest in this economy 
and get governance rights over how the funds are spent. Mm -hmm. It's way more transparent. It's, you know, I can be part of a community and have upside. And this is, this is the framing where it's like, it's not about creating like a successful business. It's about being better than donations. And actually, that's a very low bar. Right. So it doesn't even have to be profitable. Mm -hmm. Even if people lose money in this system, it's still better than donations. Right. Uh, so it's a uh, and and the dream is that you would have these startups, startup economies that could actually provide public services. And if they're not doing a good job, someone else could spin up a startup to compete with them. Mm -hmm. And now instead of having a monopoly over building roads, instead of having a monopoly over providing public safety, public health, public anything, mm -hmm. you have competing people who care, the same people who are working for public services for governments and nonprofits, the same people that have the same knowledge, but now they have a, a, a better incentive system. They have an aligned, they have an opportunity to succeed. Is it just like putting the power of competitive markets behind, behind nonprofits? Pretty much. That's really the bridge that's being built here? That's exactly the dream. It, free market economies as opposed to free market businesses, right. instead of having the economy that all the businesses are competing in, mm -hmm. in a free market where, you know, the Federal Reserve just decides to change Cheats, interest rates yeah. whenever they want. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a free market, yeah. you know, uh, but it's, it's the economy. So the economy, you could start thinking of it as an economy. Right. And these are all other economies, but their focus and their intention, they're a purpose driven economy. Mm -hmm. And their purpose is what is exciting for people, you know? I mean, just think about all the people who are get they, they get excited about a nonprofit cause and they work and they volunteer and they support and eventually they get burned out because they're competent. They can go work in the free market and like actually make good money, have a nice house, have like all the all the joys of society that that when they're working for the nonprofit, they're like, oh man. It, I wish I had like AC, right? <laughs> but I can't afford it because I'm like, you know, helping orphans all day. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, I guess I'll go get a job and sell out. What if you could sell? What if you didn't have to sell out? What if the value that was being created was appreciated? What if we had systems that gave a fuck, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the dream. And you know, I'm probably not going to do it wrong. I'm a bit of a. I'm probably going to do it wrong. I'm a bit of a joker, but you know we're pushing, and at the very least, we're inspiring. And we definitely know that we learn in this industry from experiments. Yeah, everything is an experiment until one of the experiments turns into a success, and then it's no longer an experiment. So, Griff, I admire your passion and your commitment to public goods, and I find that what you are doing is very in line with the community around Ethereum at large. Uh, so thank you for coming on Layer Zero and, and telling us your story today. Yeah, thanks, man. And and if anyone wants to play with that second side, there are these mm -hmm. uh, parameter parties. We're doing this collaborative economics thing. So go follow uh, TE Commons on Twitter, T-E-C-M-N-S, at T-E-C-M-N-S. Mm -hmm. We'll put it in the show notes. Nice. Yeah, and there's these mm -hmm. parameter parties. It's like, you know, economies have always been designed by people in the back room. Don't get me wrong. I love Ethereum, but who voted on a 32 Ether, right? Mm -hmm. Like. But it's mm -hmm. just it's not it's not a thing because economies are for smart people to design. But right. I think that's what monarchy said about d democracy. Right. And like, right. you know, uh -huh. so I think that right. we can end this economic monarchy idea and actually start allowing for a collaborative design of economies. And we're doing that for the first time in the token engineering commons. You can design a bonding curve, complicated conviction voting thing. And we'll and we will 
everyone can, anyone can submit a design and then we can collectively and iteratively fork it and improve it. So it'll be super yes. cool. And if you want like a real token engineering learning opportunity, it's happening right now in the TE Discord for the next three weeks. So cool. super cool opportunity. There's your call to action. So uh, bankless listeners, you heard him. Griff, thanks for coming on, my man. Hey, thanks. Thanks for letting me rant. Of course. Cheers.